Welcome to Reformations, the podcast of the Meter Center for Calvin Studies. Today we welcome Eric McPhail. He teaches at Indiana University Bloomington in the French department, and he is one of the recipients of a Meter Center Research Fellowship. He is spending a month at the Meter Center, making use of our collections for his research, and building connections and networking with other scholars in the field. Eric, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about your home institution, um, your your own background and scholarship, your fields of interest. Okay. I'm a professor of French at Indiana University of Bloomington. I joined the faculty in 1988. And uh, I won't give you time to do the arithmetic, but anyway, I've been there a long time. <laughs> and uh, I teach language and literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also involved in the Renaissance Studies program, which allows me to offer interdisciplinary seminars, but we teach those in English. But otherwise, I've been spending a long time in the classroom teaching French. And your areas of interest are French Renaissance yes, primarily? Uh, yeah, I'm, so I'm a, a specialist in the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And so you've written, I know, on Montaigne, on Baudin. Am I right that you're the editor of a journal right now? Yes. Um, I edit uh, Erasmus Studies, which used to be called the Erasmus of Rotterdam Society Yearbook. But once we started going more than once a year, we changed the name. And uh, I've been doing that since 2013. And my predecessor in that role was uh, Kathy Eden from Columbia. And so I'm also the editor of a journal, so we, you and I can sympathize and, and, and share stories about being editors. What have you enjoyed most about the process of being editor? What have you found most challenging? Well, I suppose the main benefit is I've learned a whole lot about Erasmus mm-hmm. by, by editing the journal and reading all the book reviews and doing Copy editing is also studying, in a yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, sometimes it's hard to persuade people to give you stuff when they said they would yeah <laughs> or even shortly after they said they would yeah. but uh and f- and also the there's a challenge that's fairly widespread namely the lack of institutional support yeah. for uh scholarly journals i mean universities want their faculty to have that kind of credential they just don't want to support it mm-hmm. <laughs> have you had any challenge one of my challenges that i face is finding sufficient colleagues willing to do peer review for you for journals, articles? Ah, um, so far I've been doing okay on that, but the, it depends. I don't know what, what is the journal that you edit then? You so the Calvin Theological Journal, I'm its editor. It comes out twice a year. It focuses primarily on Reformed theology and scholarship. So I get submissions in Reformation history, religious theology, Reformation, Reformed theology and Reformed history, biblical studies. Um, and it's sometimes challenging because our colleagues are asked to be peer reviewers without compensation. Naturally, And yeah, if naturally. you get a lot of articles on the same subject, you're tapping the same people again yeah. and again and again. Although I, I imagine that's a pretty large field. I mean, you have, there's a lot of people get asked, but they've also been asked to do other things. And it's not their top priority, obviously, because it's not their work. It's someone else's. Exactly. But it, it, so the state of Erasmus uh, is part of the field of Neo-Latin studies, mm-hmm. which presupposes on the part of anybody involved a reading knowledge of Latin. Right. Is that kind of narrows down? It does. It does mean that you don't have so many people. There's other field. And so I guess what I have to do is to cultivate a kind of a friendship. Yes. In other words. So I, I, um, 
I do frequently uh, enlist the services of the same colleagues. Yep. Some of them have, I mean, if you're on the editorial board, you, yes. can't, you can't really duck it. Yes, exactly. To. That's kind of what you expect, isn't but it? But I, I think that uh, most experienced professors understand that if mm -hmm. uh, it's give and take. Yes. You, you know, they, others will do that for you, you do that for them. Exactly. No, it's good. I mean, and when, when you get people willing to do it, it's a wonderful a wonderful gift as an editor to have people willing to, to take on the task of looking over someone else's scholarship and providing good feedback, because mm -hmm. it's not obvious how you do that and do that well. Um, well, let's turn a little more now to your own work and your purpose for being here. Okay. What led you to apply for a fellowship at the Meter Center? I think I must have first seen an announcement uh, via the Renaissance Society of America. Mm -hmm. And um, it's funny because I saw that the deadline was maybe the same week I saw it. And I said, ah, that's too late. <laughs> and so I was determined to apply the next year. You uh -huh. see? <laughs> Otherwise, I might have ignored it. It's funny. But, um, but it coincides very well with uh, what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And so I can tell you yes. that uh, in my time here, uh, my three weeks I've spent so far, I've been able to finish my book. And my book I'm calling Atheists progress, mm -hmm. religious tolerance from Renaissance to Enlightenment. Congratulations. And uh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that's under contract and it's going to be delivered a little ahead of time, I'm proud to say, uh -huh. uh, because I had obliged myself to submit the whole thing by September 15th. But thanks to the good progress I made here, I think I'm pretty confident I could anticipate that deadline a little. But here in the Meter Center, I'm just continuing, uh, assuming that you might be interested. Yes, absolutely. In knowing that uh, the materials in the Meter Center that interest me primarily are, first of all, all of the primary and secondary sources you have connected to Sebastian Castelio and the death of Michel Servais. Mm -hmm. Not a proud episode in the history of Calvinism, but an important one, and it's well documented in the Meter Center. Yes, and primary and secondary sources. Mm -hmm. The secondary, frankly, I don't think I would have come here just to look at the secondary sources, mm -hmm. but I suppose that's <laughs> the same with others. But there are, the Meter Center is a very focused rare books collection. Yes. And that focus coincided with my research interest. And the second area is 17th century Dutch Calvinism. Right. And because of this institution, yep. that's... In fact, I wonder sometimes if you could just go out in the community and you could find like 300-year-old books and people... Oh, you can. Absolutely. <laughs> people come to us and say, I have these books, right, um, that my great-grandfather has, and none of us can read them now. Exactly. Would you like them? Yes, I hope you say yes. We <laughs> do. We do indeed. Be because this is a... I mean, of all the places outside of Western Europe, I mean, mm -hmm. this has to be one of the few where uh, that... The, the genealogical connections, yep. the confessional connections Absolutely. to 17th century Dutch Calvinism are very strong. Yep. And so uh, while here, uh, my primary reading has been the work of uh, a man whose name you pronounce as Gisberto Vutius. Vutius, yes. Vutius, and whom <laughs> I pronounce Voetius. <laughs> but uh, so I was very pleased to see, and otherwise I wouldn't have applied, that, that you mm. have the... Uh, five volumes of his select theological disputations. Yes. And really everything else mm -hmm. that you need. And it's it's a sort of collection that you wouldn't expect to find outside the Netherlands, actually. Yes. I mean, it's, the, I've worked at, uh, I was at the Scaliger Institute of Leiden University. I saw that. And yes. Leiden is a terrific institution. Yes. 
And naturally, they have everything you can imagine, but they also have one of the best collections in the world for, mm -hmm. for so many different fields. Mm -hmm. But the Meter Center has a very uh, tailored collection, yep. which matches some of the best you know, archives and repositories in those one areas. Yep. So you wouldn't come here you know, just to browse across the whole spectrum sure. of sure. the humanities. No. But uh, I was very pleased to see that uh, you have the Vutsius mm -hmm. and pretty much all of the primary sources that one needs and certainly more than one could have patience to read uh, to study him. It is, it is amazing and I know we have really benefited from the generosity of people in the community who have collected these works mm -hmm. and who have then donated them and especially our connection with uh, the seminary allows us to have connections with pastors and mm. pastors are often the ones who had these books mm. either past generations of pastors or current pastors and then eventually the books come to us and pastors are sometimes the ones who wrote the books exactly <laughs> absolutely and you want this trend to continue right um so talk a little more about your topic why this particular topic i mean obviously it's a topic with modern mm -hmm. interest but what led you to decide okay this is really what i want to write a whole book on toleration atheism the connections so I, um, I didn't conceive of it as an intervention in contemporary political debates, right. although it could be, yes. but, um, but rather uh, from teaching French Renaissance mm -hmm. and from teaching the wars of religion, mm -hmm. I encountered an argument that first struck me as rather paradoxical, but then eventually just, I realized it was just a commonplace, namely, mm -hmm. namely the argument made by those uh, writers that, that we call les politiques yes the who are advocating a political solution to religious differences mm -hmm. uh, often they would write and from both uh, the huguenot mm -hmm. and the catholics and huguenot pretending to be catholics yes. in their uh, that is to say in their authorial persona yes. but they would they would make the argument that uh, we need to uh, grant uh, religious tolerance to the, to the minority. Mm -hmm. And by that they meant we don't have to like them, but we, we have to give them um, a certain uh, legal guarantee of freedom of worship as well as freedom of conscience. The term freedom of conscience is a very... Um, I think a very ambiguous one, but anyway, yes. the, the, the argument was that we need to grant the religious minority tolerance because if we don't, they're going to become atheists. Okay. And, you know, once you have atheism, everything goes to hell. Right. So do this minor, perhaps, or, or adjustment in order to prevent the bigger danger. Uh, in fact, yeah, it was the lesser of evils. Yes. Although it was never a minor adjustment, that's no, for sure. Quite. <laughs> in French history, uh, the, the French have had a traumatic history, mm -hmm. and uh, the wars of religion were one of the most traumatic episodes, no doubt. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in fact, <laughs> in t if you think about 17th century French Protestantism, they probably regretted <laughs> having settled, you know, with the Catholics, mm -hmm. because in the course of time, after the the Edict of Nantes was promulgated in 1598. The Protestants were integrated into society to a certain extent yes. and were allowed to practice certain professions and mm -hmm. hold certain offices. And the first king, Henry IV, who promulgated the Edict, had been a Protestant, converted to Catholicism in order to be king, 
but was not interested in persecuting his yes. former co-religionaries. But in the course of time, the Protestants <laughs> became merely civilians. And once they didn't have an army, forget it. I mean, yeah. Louis XIV had... Louis XIV didn't need to tolerate him. So what inter another fact that interests me is this argument that there's a... There's a I mean, apart from the people who are intransigent, yes. who just said that my beliefs are true and yours are false, mm -hmm. the, the people who had a political approach um, said, moreover, that you know, tolerance is a lesser evil than atheism, but it's also a lesser evil than war. Yes. And the French had pretty long experience of constantly... Um, promulgating and retracting and reissuing edicts of, of edicts of pacification as they were called yes edicts of toleration yes and um so they wanted a settlement mm -hmm. but the settlement eliminated that argument for tolerance okay and so in the course of time the french monarchy i mean once lent an ear to the most bigoted advisors mm -hmm. realized well we don't you know by their own arguments, we do, they don't have an army. Why should we tolerate them? Right, right, because they just sort of undercut their own position. And basically. so, in that, in in that respect, the this various uh, instrumental arguments for tolerance lost their validity mm -hmm. because there was t tolerance had been highly instrumental. Yes, at a time when there was a um, military stalemate. Mm -hmm. But that time passed, yes, and so the instrumental arguments for tolerance lapsed. At which point, people needed to find a value in tolerance for its own sake, right? And so that interests me to coordinate. I'm, I'm basically I'm I'm a teacher of literature, so I study literary texts. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to put them in a sequence that could plausibly support an argument. And and my approach is to combine the history of tolerance with the history of atheism. Okay. And to, and to see how the changing status of atheism mm -hmm. as a concept mm -hmm. explains to some extent the, the evolution in theory and practice of tolerance. Okay. All right. So you see the, 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 the connection then building up beyond the instrumental understanding. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And right. I, I see both... I mean... Tolerance has a, pra a theory and a practice. Mm -hmm. It's not clear if atheism does, actually. Right, right. <laughs> but, uh, but in any event, the, I'm interested in the relationship between the status of atheism yep. and uh, the approach that society takes to uh, the toleration of religious minorities. So someone like Castellio... Had did not really have an instrumental understanding of tolerance. He's a bit of an outlier, isn't he? Yes, he's an outlier in so many respects, mm -hmm. uh, except in respect to the fact that from the 400th anniversary of the death of Michel Servet, the 400th anniversary coming in 1953, yep. there's been a tremendous revival of interest yes. in Castello. Yes. So he's actually... Um, quite a prominent figure, I'd say, in scholarship, in the scholarship that's representing the Meter Center. Yes. Um, it's, I mean, you're, you're a historian? Yes. I, so you, you can tell me whether your colleagues in history recognize his name or not. I think they do to a certain extent. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. He's been 
adopted by certain people mm-hmm. as sort of the, 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 the I don't know, the, the flag bearer mm-hmm. for the almost modern understanding of mm-hmm. toleration. And I think historians are a little bit uneasy with well, that. Well, you should blend, be uneasy. Right? <laughs> that because, yeah. the, the, I mean, of course, I mean, a historian wants to understand what a 16th century thinker uh, made of a concept, yeah. not what a 20th century or 21st century thinker projects back. Yeah. On the other hand, I think we should be grateful for Castelli for taking a, a principled stand and, yes. and, and a, an unpopular one and exposing himself to a great torrent of abuse yes. from, yeah, he certainly from had a man named suffering. Jean Calvin. And Beza and everyone yes. else. I mean, so, so just to give a little background in case our, our hearers are not sure, too sure, familiar, sure. Castelio was from Savoy, from the territory around Geneva. Um, he was an early adopter of the Reformation. He was a colleague of Calvin in Geneva. But um, he and Calvin, and he had taught in Geneva. Castelio was a teacher, actually, in one of the Genevan schools. But he and Calvin um, um, butted heads, shall we say. Um, Calvin disagreed with uh, Castelio's interpretation of the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, according to Castelio, was very much totally a love poem, mm-hmm. and Calvin read it differently. Calvin opposed Castelio's desire to be a pastor in Geneva and ended up essentially forcing him out. Mm-hmm. And Castelio headed instead for Basel, where he eked out a living. Uh, not a good um, model for academic uh, work because the poor man nearly starved as a sort of a <laughs> Listen, adjunct he, professor. He's the prototypical professor. Come on. <laughs> Large family, no money. <laughs> yeah, they said he used to have to fish pieces of wood out of the river to sell them to make money. <laughs> he, he did uh, type, you know, typesetting, correcting, yeah. and proofs, and so on and so forth, and every odd job he could find. But he is most known for his writings on on toleration and for opposing especially the uh, harsh punishment of Servetus in Geneva. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have Castellio, and then we have a lot of people who look at toleration sort of instrumentally. At what point does the changeover happen to a more general understanding of toleration as a good in its own right? Well... um Everyone tells a story. Mm-hmm. That's not the same as telling the truth. Yes. So, so in, in my narrative, yes. <laughs> I think that there is, um, I think there's a change in function of the changing uh, political military status of Calvinists. Right. Both in France, where their status was in decline, mm-hmm. and the Netherlands, where they were in the ascendancy. Yes. And so I'm interested in also in the, um, what? in the intersection of those processes. Mm-hmm. But I think that Vrutius is yes. a very, as, as a staunch advocate of orthodoxy, is a very interesting uh, witness to a sense within his, uh, I guess that he must have shared with his audience, mm-hmm. that, um, that atheism is not a threat to the state. Right. Uh, but that all, but, what interests me there is, I'm st- so starting with Castelio in his book Contra Libellum Calvini, mm-hmm. which was actually first published in the Netherlands in the 17th century, long after it was written, in a new context. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why Castelio has kind of an undying fame, because he's, I mean, he's, he's everybody's martyr in a sense. Yes. And so, um, so in his Contra Libellum Calvini, 
Castelli was quite happy to advocate persecution of atheists. Yes. He says, we don't persecute them for religion because they don't have any. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this was, I'm sure, a, a, an almost unanimous opinion. Yes. Um, but he says the problem with Calvin is Calvin keeps confusing heretics and atheists. Mm -hmm. And they're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, heretics worship the same God as we do. They just don't interpret the scriptures the same as the uh, as others do, mm -hmm. because who knows what the scriptures mean, and that really infuriated the Calvinists. Oh no, no question. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, and so I'm also interested in Castellio and his connection with Montaigne and, and forward and Erasmus backward and skepticism and sure. uh, and uh, uh, epistemological issues, which I think are very important to tolerance, and other people think so too. <laughs> I mean, do you think that atheism as a concept or the idea of an atheist in the 16th and 17th century was that? Was that something people could really imagine, or was it sort of a, a figure at which you could sort of almost an imaginary figure? Because, mm. I mean, did people have a real concept of what atheism might be in this period? Well, they certainly have the word. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I mean, uh, famously, Lucien Favre, in a book first published in 1942, said that um, of, this, of the 16th century, that c'est un siècle qui veut croire. So that for him, atheism is incompatible with this. But so, what originally struck me from this argument that though the people who say that if you don't tolerate the minority, they'll become atheists, for them that must have been a real phenomenon. Right. Not only do they say they will, but they say as we see. A right. couple of authors say that. Jean Baudin uh -huh. and uh, Philippe Duplessis Mornay and others uh, Baudin is a very dubious figure whenever it comes to religion, but Monet is not. No. And, yeah. <laughs> and, they, and often, and uh, Michel L'Hôpital and mm -hmm. others, they'll say that not just that, you know, if if we do not grant um, uh, freedom to practice their religion, mm -hmm. people will have no religion. Yes. And when they have no religion, they'll have no morality, no and conscience, etc. The whole and country that, will to fall them, apart. Is it, yeah. mm -hmm. And to them, that's not. Uh, uh, a specious okay. thing. That's a, right. that's a, and moreover, they'll say as we see. They mm -hmm. don't say where they saw it, but no. apparently, it's a. <laughs> apparently, there's some sort of empirical evidence for this. Too bad they don't give sort of specifics. So, isn't so, it? To, to, so for them, it's an empirical phenomenon. Right. Okay. Um, and this we have testimony in uh, in French, in Dutch, and in Latin. Mm -hmm. um, my corpus is restricted in that way. Yes. Uh, but um, and so I'm actually avoiding English. Yes, I saw that because it's been done a million times. Yes, and also exactly. Because, because I'm interested in um, in this death of Michel Servet as a turning point, mm -hmm. and that was such a, a phenomenon. That phenomenon was very strong wherever Calvinism was. Yeah, yeah. And um, but anyway, uh, so I would. I have a sense that when writers talk about atheism, they think they know what they mean. Mm -hmm. Or they won't necessarily mean the same thing. Right, right, right. No, no, they have to have some idea in but, mind. But here's my, here's my intuition, uh, which I thought was worth developing, is that um, those who say that uh, if you deny people the right to practice their own religion, and since they're certainly not going to take our religion, mm -hmm. they won't have any religion, mm -hmm. they conceive of atheism as a kind of religious ostracism, mm -hmm. as, uh, as a kind of a, 
as as we can say that someone is stateless. Yes. The same thing we could say they're churchless. Yes. And that is how many writers in vernacular Latin writers in the latter half of the 16th century conceive of atheism. Yes. So in the history of philosophy, that has nothing to do with what the historians of philosophy talk about. There's a lot of right. debates about the atheism, about reality of atheism, the, when it started. But for, for historians of philosophy, atheism means saying more or less, I don't believe in God. Right. But the religious minority doesn't say I don't believe no, in God. No, exactly. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. Yeah. Because the, it's the idea that if you deprive people, not just of their conscience, but religion is... Uh, from what I can understand in the 16th century, religion is a communal practice. It's a shaper of community. You, you, yep. you, can't be, Absolutely. you can't be religious by yourself. No. You have to be religious with others. Otherwise, yes. you're not religious. Yep. It's, so you can see how that exclusion or that ostracism then creates atheism. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's very, very curious about Calvin is how he insisted that, in writing, he insisted that uh, those who profess the his religion, yes. the Reformed religion, cannot participate in the Catholic Mass. Yes. Because that's pollution and yes. idolatry. Yes. Others notice that, well, if they can't participate in the Catholic Mass and they can't come here, what are they supposed to exactly. do? Exactly. Yep. And, and uh, so there's a uh, one of his lieutenants, maybe we call him, uh, Valerien Poulain, Poulain, yep. Poulain mm -hmm. who in a Latin letter tells in a very diplomatic way, says, listen, Calvin, I mean, mm -hmm. if, you, if you really hold the line on this, you know what's going to happen. These mm -hmm. people are going to become atheists. Mm -hmm. And there it struck me that this is really a communitarian notion Absolutely. of theism. And so I'm really, I'm really, since it seems at times remote to me, I'm really fascinated by theism mm -hmm. and how it defines atheism. Yes. So, I mean, atheism always is, it, it, it presupposes a notion of theism. Yes. And it's a very strong and widely held belief that theism is communitarian. Yes. You don't believe in God all by yourself. In the 16, early modern period, that's correct. Yeah, absolutely. And because belief is a communal model, then heresy or wrong belief is dangerous because it harms not just the individual, but the whole community. Yeah. And always the language used is a language of contagious disease. Yes. It's a plague. It's gangrene. It's, you know, <laughs> epidemic. And that's why Servetus had to be killed, according to Calvin. Yeah, what, what interests me, uh, there's, I mean, this whole topic is fascinating. You don't have to like something to be interested in. No, absolutely. <laughs> but... but um, or you don't have to have any genealogical connection. No, I don't. I don't come from a Dutch Catholic. No, but you can still absolutely work on this. Yes, <laughs> but uh, and I and, and I must testify to the fact that the Meter Center doesn't discriminate. No, exactly. We take everyone. <laughs> you, don't, you don't. No one checked my birth certificate. Right nope. <laughs> but uh, anyway, which I didn't think to bring with me. But um, that Calvin uses a language that's that's weirdly reminiscent. Of the ancient Greek notion of miasma, mm -hmm. of you know, the, the, in ancient Greek society, the murder was a, so, a blood crime was a source of pollution. Yeah, and had to be expelled from the community. Yep, and this is something that E. R. Dodds talks about in his book, The Greeks and the Irrational. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, we were doing the the Luther commemoration. Sure. And I, I proposed and gave a little talk on the Protestants and the Irrational. Yep. Because I think this idea of of miasma or pollution mm -hmm. 
is it didn't strike the writers as odd. It seemed to be go without saying. Right. That that there's and so there's a kind of an atavism almost in it. But I think it's also present within the Catholic Church. It's, it's present within any community of belief in that period. So mm. in the Well, where Catholic, do you see it in Catholicism? So in, if you're in a Catholic realm and you're accused of heresy and condemned for wrong belief, what do they do? They purify in the killing. Mm -hmm. So they burn you, they drown you, or they bury you alive. Pyre, water, and earth. Three ways of cleansing the community. It's not just for, you know, a model to show people, well, this will happen to you if you do the same thing. They don't chop people's heads off. Mm -hmm. They do some very clear purifying rituals to rid the community of the wrong belief. Mm -hmm. And those are very clearly ones intended to remove the contagion. Okay, yeah. And that's, so, that's absolutely evident. So that's the same thing. It's, yeah. The funny thing is, I mean, it's... It was common to point out, for instance, uh, all of Pierre Bale's numerous enemies were always telling him, well, listen, we just killed one guy. I mean, mm -hmm, the Catholics, mm -hmm. they killed millions of people. Sure. <laughs> and Bale, though, is right. I mean, the trial of Servais turned into the trial of Calvin. Yes. Oh, yeah. Inevitably. Absolutely. And, and Calvin lost. And even, even now, even now. It hasn't happened recently, but for quite a number of years, whenever someone didn't like John Calvin, they would write to the institution here and say, you shouldn't call yourself... Calvin College, because Calvin's a terrible man. He killed Servetus. Oh, no kidding. And those emails like, would come to me, and I would have to answer them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a whole set of them. <laughs> I should laugh, but that's, that's but interesting. So that's a very contemporary. Oh, it's still there, right? But oh, that's what pretty I find fascinating that's pretty is interesting. that Calvin Servetus. Watch okay, out, people, your email. <laughs> that's right. You never know, right? Calvin Servetus is that burning, you know, that really major flaw on Calvin. But Zwingli in Zurich played a very similar role to Calvin in the death of Felix Muntz, who was okay. a leading Anabaptist. Mm -hmm. He was drowned alive in the Limat River. Okay. Now, nobody goes around saying anything mean about Zwingli, partly because he's not really known, right? But, well, partly because we don't profess Zwingliism. I mean, <laughs> let's see, that's, so that's fascinating, right? <laughs> Felix Muntz, you know, we got Servetus lifted up as this hero. Mm -hmm. Felix Muntz, unless you're a Mennonite, you've never heard of Felix Muntz. Um, it's very interesting. How do we write his name? Felix, F-E-L-I-X, F -E -L -I -X, and Muntz, M-A-N-Z. He was a young patrician of Zurich. Okay. He adopted Anabaptism along with mm -hmm. others. He was told, along with other Anabaptists in Zurich, to stop doing adult baptisms. He refused. He was arrested and drowned alive in the Limat River. When was that? That, was that would have been 1528, 2728, okay. uh, uh, uh. relatively early on. But um, I find it fascinating I, I wrote an article on Calvin's reputation mm. and why Calvin's reputation has been so uh, damaged by the Servetus encounter where others in the time did things that were probably uh, similar, let's put it that way, but no one has had nearly as much blowback. Well, as yeah, I, I would interpret that just as a function of orthodoxy. Yep. I mean, every orthodoxy creates heresies. Yep. If you don't believe what I do, sure. you're wrong. Absolutely. And the Reformation actually witnessed a proliferation of orthodox instead of just one church yep. now we have often Many. each city absolutely and and each defines its own uh, other its own yep. its own heretics absolutely so the reformation created kind of a renaissance of heresy it in did. a sense absolutely but surely i mean it, it would be unhistorical not to say immature to say well Here's one bad guy, and you know mm -hmm. he's he's ten times as bad as this guy. He's six yep. times as bad. I mean, orthodoxy functions that way, yep. and when it's combined with political force, it's even worse. Yep. Oh, I think so, and I think also part of it is um, people have funny relationship to the reformers. 
you want them to be perfect somehow. There's this expectation. <laughs> well, we have we have lesser expectations. People. You're saying of the Catholic clergy. <laughs> um, I don't know about that, but there's some very interesting sort of, I mean, quasi saint-like characteristics mm. given to reformers. It's funny because um, they don't they don't recognize the saints. No, no, but that's the thing, right? <laughs> so there's some really amazing stories about Luther, where he has this saint-like quality that if you had something of his, it would, you know, protect your house against oh, fire. Oh, I see. So like forth. relics. Relics, <laughs> relics of, of, of um, and if you've got a piece which of the of bed is, in which he died, which you wouldn't Which is get idolatry, isn't it? I mean. It's fascinating, right? But so we have this kind of funny relationship. If you look at the uh, collection of medals, commemorative medals of the Reformation in the Meter Center, it's mm. a very odd thing. I haven't actually. You should look at okay, them. There's one of Calvin's head in like 1550. Four, like nine years or so before, eight, nine years before he died. And the whole idea of having your reformer as a head on a medal mm. is kind of an odd thing. I mean, it's not coinage, right? They're not using it for money. Uh, as, as if he were an imperator. Or, or a saint, okay. right? Or and a some saint. of them okay. had uh. little holes in the top of the medal and you could put it around your neck. I see, yes. And the Catholics said, okay, this is ridiculous. We can't have our saints medals. And here you are turning <laughs> your reformers into saints. Well, very people, interesting. Well, listen, let me ask you this. Then. Uh, are you aware of people who went on pilgrimage to Geneva? Um, even today, you will find folks who want to know where Calvin was buried. Okay. They don't know that because he didn't allow for that, but they okay. want to know. Well. And it was very clear for Luther that there was pilgrimage for Luther sites okay. and there that that was, that was a, holy, a holy thing. Yes. Um, and the Wall of the Reformers, if you've been in Geneva, is very peculiar. I don't remember. You'll have to remind it's, me. It's like more than life-size statues okay. of Calvin and Beza and Knox okay. and... I can't remember who the fourth one was. Anyhow, they're standing there in a big row, like I mean, enormous. It's 19th century, early 20th century, but very now, they, interesting. They don't they don't think put those that. by the casinos, do they? No, 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 not so much by the casinos, by the university. You know, Geneva has changed its reputation in I modern know. times. I know it's become a very different place from the city of Calvin, no question. So you've almost finished this project, and that's fantastic. Um, do you have other? projects ongoing or things you're wanting to work on? In fact, uh, this morning I've been writing about Lorenzo Valla's encomium of Thomas Aquinas. Uh-huh. And um, it's uh, that's part of a much larger project about rhetoric. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm writing on epideictic rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And I'm writing, <laughs> I'm I'm writing about what I call odious praise. Okay. Which is... Uh, Rhetoric of praise, which actually serves the same function as blame. Okay. And uh, one of my examples is Vala's encomium of St. Thomas, which so infuriated the Dominicans <laughs> that his initial audience was is reported to have thought he was insane. Uh-huh. <laughs> so anyway, I'm working on a project of rhetoric. And in fact... Uh, just this week, uh, I'm going to attend the International Society for the History of Rhetoric, which is meeting in New Orleans, okay. the hottest place on the face of the earth. Of course. <laughs> and so, I'm also, so that's uh, another book-length project. Wonderful. I'll give you much more to work on. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. This has been fascinating, and I'm so glad you were able to be here for a fellowship, and I hope that as the project moves on in its final phases, that the work you've done here really helps shape that, that book. Well, thank you, and I enjoyed talking to you and learn more about Calvin, Calvinism. Wonderful. Thanks so much.